0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Last time, we worked through a ton of scripture trying to get a multidimensional view of how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit. This time we'll consider a few scriptures that have confused some into thinking the Spirit is really an individual or person distinct from the Father and the Son. This study is pretty technical, though I did my best to make the grammatical Greek points understandable. Even so, it will be difficult to follow along unless you download the handout we used in class. Check out the show notes in your device or visit recitudio.org and find Theology Part 15 to get a link to the document with the same page numbers I used in class. Here now is Theology, part 15, Challenging the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, please give your attention to
1: Kyle of the McLean clan. That's my roommate. Hey, that's right, buddy. Um, So my passage was on Acts 5, uh, 3. And one uh, well, also goes with verse 4, um, and it reads, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, it did not remain your own, and after it was sold, was not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." And now the problem here, if you uh, didn't notice, is that in verse 3, it says uh, that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, it says that Ananias lied uh, to God. And so Trinitarians find support for uh, the Trinity in uh, this passage as the Holy Spirit and God are distinguished, but Ananias lied to the same God God, and the Holy Spirit, and so they find support here. And there are a couple of responses here. Uh, the first response is that this is a, a circular argument. Um, first off, the doctrine of the Trinity is never explicitly told or taught in the Bible, so this doctrine of the Trinity is just assumed, and uh, this verse fits the assumption of the Trinity and so then therefore they claim that this is proof of the Trinity when, when in fact there's no explicit statement on whether t- the Trinity is taught. So it, it's yeah. a circular argument there. And uh, the second response is that the Holy Spirit has three things, it's either one, another name for God, two, it is the power of God, or three, it is the gift of God's nature that is given to each believer. And uh, we're going to go ahead and focus on the Holy Holy Spirit being another name for God. And so what we know is that God is known by uh, many names in the Bible, such as Elohim, as we talked about earlier, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Adon. Uh, the Holy One of Israel, the Most High, and the Father. So, we see that God is given many different names in the Bible. It's not just God, and it's not just Yahweh. He has many different names that are attributed to Him. And we also know that God, He is one, God is a holy God, and two, God is spirit. And so, it shouldn't surprise us that another name for God would be uh, Numa Hagion, uh, Holy Spirit. And we see a proof of this in uh, Matthew 1.18-20 and Luke uh, 1.35. Uh, in these accounts of the birth of Jesus, uh, it is described as the Holy Spirit uh, being the Father of Jesus. But in every other account throughout the Bible, we see that uh, God is the Father of Jesus. And no, uh, Matthew and Luke aren't trying to say that Jesus has two separate fathers and the Holy Spirit and the Father, but rather that the Holy Spirit described in Matthew one eighteen and Luke one thirty five, is God. And uh, there's when the Holy Spirit, well in the original Greek manuscripts, the letters were all capitalized and so you don't know whether you're supposed to capitalize it or not, you have to go into context. But when the Holy Spirit is uh, all lowercase, that usually refers to uh, the gifts of God's nature that is given to each believer. But when the Holy Spirit is capitalized, uh, that's when it can be another name for God. And that's what we see in uh, Matthew 1, through 20 and Luke 1.35. And so those are the responses uh, to that problem of the Trinity. But also uh, another problem that I know some people bring up that's not related to this, so I won't talk about it a lot, is that uh, non-personality of the devil people find support uh, for this in Acts 5.3. Uh, verses three and four as well Four it says, but Peter said, and asked why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later in verse four, it says, you have, or uh, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And so uh, non-personality of the devil people say that basically uh, the devil, the devil pretty much is us or it's our evil desires where all mm-hmm. our temptations come from and so in verse three it says satan filled your heart to lie but in verse four it says that you have contrived this deed in your heart and so they try to connect that the satan really is just your inner being it's your inner desires that you have Uh, but again i would argue that this is a circular argument as well as there's uh, no explicit uh, teaching in the bible of the non-personality of the devil. And so then, yes, this verse could fit the assumption Mm. that there is no devil. And then they go and say, well, this is then proof of uh, the non-personality of the devil.
0: Or it could be that Satan filled their heart, and then as a result of Satan filling their heart, they contrived this deed.
1: Yes, yes, and that was my second
0: both So both are true. Yeah. I don't want to cut you off. Are are you? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Any, any other comments on that Acts 5:3. So um, another another thought along those lines is that uh, the spirit is not necessarily a name of God, I wouldn't say, but it's a, um, a way of referring to God. I guess I'm like uh, splitting hairs there. Uh, and I say that because there's this one uh, theres this one interesting place here. I think it's Luke 11:20 where Jesus says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then in the parallel, Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. So one, it's a finger, and one, it's a spirit. So I think we could say the Spirit is the finger of God. Now, I'm not trying to be crass here and say it's actually a finger, but like it's... The means by which God is able to do things in our world. The function of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is to deal with the issue of transcendence versus eminence. Transcendence is the idea that God is other. He's in heaven. He's not here. He says to Moses, you can't see me. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, you're going to die if you see my glory. And it's not until the very end of the Bible that God is able to come down and we can see his face and his name will be in our foreheads. That's Revelation 22. So, uh, there's a sense in which God is not here. That's the idea of transcendence. God is other, he's elsewhere, and so on. Then, you have the the doctrine of imminence. That's the idea that God is present. He is here. He uh, knows all the hairs on your head. He... um, If you go to the bottom of the ocean, He's still there. If you go up to the highest mountain, He's still there. Psalm 139, you know, so like the Bible says both. It says both things. It says that God is not here, He's in heaven. Uh, He can't be here because He's too holy. And then it says in other places that He is here, He's present, He's closer than your very breath, right? So how do you resolve that? The Holy Spirit. So God's not here, but His Spirit is. And because His Spirit is here, He's here through the Spirit. Whatever, however, that works.
2: Look at First Corinthians 5, 6. <laughs>
0: yeah, there it is. Uh, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. This is First Corinthians 5, 3. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Because he's not physically there. It's not like you can separate... And, you know, Paul's limited. He's not... You know, he's present in spirit, but he's not present in spirit the way God's present in spirit. The way I state it simply is that the spirit is God or Christ or both present with us. It's, It's how they're able to be here, even though they're there. And then I have some like texts and logical arguments. One is that the Holy Spirit does not have a name. So if it's a person, it's an unnamed person. (laughs) And biblically, to not have a name is like the greatest insult. You know what I mean? Your name is everything. Number two, the Holy Spirit never sends greetings. Bless you. So over and over again, especially in Paul's epistles, he says, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why isn't the Spirit sending greetings like grace and peace? Number three, the Holy Spirit is owned by God. It's the Spirit of God. It's possessed by God. It's God's spirit. Which, if it was an actual person, would meet, would make it a slave. The Holy Spirit, number four, is never prayed to. For example, John 16, 23. Truly I say, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Where's the spirit here? You know what I mean? So, the spirit is never prayed to. There's no place in any of the Bible where it says, Oh, Holy Spirit, please do this or please do that. Number five, the Holy Spirit is left out of key passages like John 10:30. I and the Father are one. Why doesn't it say I and the Father and the Spirit are one? Uh, then you have, last of all, the Holy Spirit is not in the visions of heaven. So when you have a vision of heaven where God dwells, where Jesus dwells, where the angels dwell, you don't see the Spirit as a separate entity. Chapter 4 of Revelation, John. Sees God, and he sees these seraphs around him. They're not not called seraphs. Uh, They're called living creatures in Revelation, and he sees them around God. And then in chapter five, the Lamb comes in. But it's not like chapter six, the Holy Spirit comes in. There is no, you know, like where is the Holy Spirit in the in the heavenly vision? So I mean, obviously that's an argument from silence, which is fairly weak but it is, there's still a power to it. Like why isn't the spirit included in these other areas? If it were a person, we would expect to see it there. So that, those are some logical supporting uh, reasons for that. Now, what I wanna do is work through with you uh, some, some of this paper here, okay? This is uh, obviously a long paper. I've got a list for you there of all these different translations. Check that out, huh? these are a bunch of different translations, and what I do is I include a translation of each of these on Acts 5.32, which is a a verse that we have already looked at, but uh, look at it again. Page seven there. Page seven. All right, so you have the Greek there. This is from the Nestle Allons 27, uh, and it says... And we are witnesses of these words and the Holy Spirit, which, he get, which God gave to those who obey him. So you see you have the King James underneath it. You see I, in the NA27 there, I've, I've bolded the word O. It's a, it's a word that only has one letter in it, <laughs> okay? And it's the word O. This is the neuter relative pronoun. Okay, so just so you know, a relative pronoun is, I am the one who is typing. So this word, who, here is a relative pronoun. The Holy Spirit, and then it's actually the word, which God gave. That's what it says here in the Greek. Okay, so... i realize this is a little technical and i'm sorry to go greek on you guys just for a second here but it really does matter and i'll show you why in a minute greek has three genders doesn't have two genders so just like in english we have three genders he she it in greek we have three genders the first one there, is the word means which, this one means who, this one means who. In English, we don't have a different who for guys and girls. We just use who for both. But we say which for things. And what the Greek says here is the Holy Spirit which God gave to those who obey Him. That's what it says. Now, the King James translates it whom. That is a translation error. New World Translation gets it right. It says which. RSV, whom, Amplified Bible, says whom. New Jerusalem Bible, says whom. NRSV, whom, CEV, whom, NLT, who, CJB. Complete Jewish Bible, that's uh, what, David Stern. That says whom, drop the ball there. NAB, gets it right. It says that. The word that can mean either who or which. You can say that person or that thing, either way. So the New American Bible, the Catholics get it right. NASB gets it wrong, whom, TEV, today's English version, and, and so on. They all say whom. All right? <laughs> did I put the message in there? Look at that, I did. I tried to be thorough. Obviously, we got a lot going on here. Now, let's read this paragraph on page 8. After seeing that 18 of these 19 translations personalized the Holy Spirit by capitalizing S, except for the NWT has a lowercase s on spirit. And that 17 of the 19 use who or whom to refer back to the Holy Spirit, what would someone conclude? Of course they would go with the majority. Besides, the only translations that differ on this point are the Jehovah's Witnesses, New World Translation, and the Roman Catholics, New American Bible, the very two sources that evangelicals and Protestants are trained never to trust. In fact, the New World Translation does not even appear on major Bible websites. Or in my own Bible software, I don't have the Jehovah's Witnesses translation, because they don't think it's, it's worth it. So access to this version is even limited. You're not even going to find it if you, unless you really look. What is so shocking is that the Greek very clearly reads the Holy Spirit, which God gave. There is no ambiguity or confusing grammar to cloud the question. It is as plain as day as any first-year New Testament Greek student could easily verify. Look at page 9. The most frustrating aspect of this chicanery is that these translations mislead honest-hearted men and women who simply want to read and understand the Scriptures. What is more, most Bible readers implicitly trust the scholars who produce translations in the same way that most people trust doctors or school teachers. This is partly due to the impressive verbiage we saw in their translation philosophies. The NASB Adhered to a literal philosophy of translation, and required a word-for-word translation, and is accurate and precise. Yet they literally did not translate "o" as "which." The NET boasts that it has 61,000 translators' notes, enabling readers to quote look over the translator's shoulder and make quote transparent the textual basis and rationale for key renderings, including major, major interpretive options and alternate translations. However. When I look at the footnotes on Acts 5.32, I see nothing whatsoever indicating they flat-out changed a word to make their translation more palatable. Ironically, Daniel Wallace was one of the primary scholars involved in the NET, and his paper on this subject exposes this very issue. He's one of the chief translators, and he wrote a paper saying we, sh- we need to stop doing this. Then it's, we go to the NIV. The, the NIV committee stated that they were committed to, quote, the authority and infallibility of the Bible as God's word in written form, end quote. Yet they corrected the infallible scripture in their translation to read whom instead of which. Isn't a correction the result of an error? But if the scripture is infallible, why is the NIV correcting it? Lastly, the NRSV claims it is the most accurate and readable translation and that it leaves interpretation in the hands of the reader. Yet in this verse, and many others like it, it obscures the meaning of the text and does not so much as leave a footnote indicating their decision. So, if the Greek is clear, why do, they, why do they change it? And I'll tell you why they change it. They change it because they believe the Spirit is a person, and so they see that word "which" in the Greek, and they're like, well, obviously the Spirit's a person, so we've got to say who, or else we'll give our readers the impression that the Spirit is a thing and not a person. Why is it that so many of these uh, theologians believe that the Spirit is a person? Obviously, they have some verses that they think go in that direction, right? So we want to look at those. First up is Millard Erickson. He makes his argument in his uh, much-read Christian Theology, Volume Three. Dan, could you read that for us? The first the evidence PDF of here. the spirit personality
3: beneath the natural and representing him
0: says the word. Well, hold on. Let's look at that first sentence. You, uh, Let's look at that first sentence here. The, pers- the evidence of the, fir- the Spirit's personality, that's the idea that the Spirit is actually a person, an independent mind from the Father and the Son, is the use of the masculine pronoun in representing Him. Okay, so he's saying the Bible uses masculine pronouns, masculine, to represent the Spirit. So, let's see where he's, where he's going to get that from. I mean, it, it, is, it is the case, you'll see. You'll see. Go ahead, Dan.
3: Since the word kinema is neuter and since the pronouns are to agree with the end is seen in, in person, number, gender, uh, we would expect the neuter pronoun to be used to represent the Holy Spirit. Yet in John 16, 13, 14, we find an unusual phenomenon. As Jesus describes the Holy Spirit's ministry, he uses the masculine pronoun Ekinonos where we would expect the neuter pronoun. the only possible antecedent in the immediate content is spirit of church. Uh, verse 13, John deliberately chooses to use the masculine to convey to us that Jesus is referring to a person, not a thing, a similar reference in, in Ephesians 1, 14, where in a relative clause, modifying Holy Spirit, the preferred textual reading is of Barco.
0: Okay, so it's important to recognize here that Millard Erickson is not basing his arguments on theology, but grammar, right? He just made two grammatical points. He said that in John 16, the Bible uses a masculine pronoun and that in Ephesians 1.14, the Bible uses a masculine pronoun for the Spirit. Ergo, the Spirit is a person, because you don't use masculine or feminine of things, you use neuter of things, okay? So, George Ladd kind of makes the same point there, we don't need to read that. So, let's let's take a look at what's going on here. The first case of this, we find in John 14, 26, and I'm just gonna, this is page 15, I'm just gonna read on the uh, middle column there, it says the literal. Translation. This, this is not like a version somewhere. This is just like if you translate the Greek exactly. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, which the Father will send in my name, that one will teach you everything and remind you of everything which I said to you. Here it uses the word "which" to refer to the Spirit, but then it uses this, this word that one, and that is, he's arguing uh, masculine. It, well, it is, in fact, masculine. You'll see. Actually, probably the, uh, well, let, let me just keep going through here. So then you have John 15:26 says, When the advocate may come, whom or which, could be either one, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father. That one will testify concerning me. So there's that that one again. So Millard Erick, uh on the back there, same thing happens again. So Millard Erickson's point is that because the word that one, ikinos, is masculine, The Gospel of John is intentionally breaking the rules of grammar to emphasize the fact that the Spirit is a person. If his statement is true, this would be very good evidence that the Spirit is, in fact, a person.
2: How is he saying that breaking the rules of grammar by doing that? Yeah, so, um,
0: let's see. Josiah is happy, and um, he smiles. Okay, so... Here's a little grammar for everybody, a little English grammar. This right here we call a noun, right? It's a proper noun, it's capitalized. This right here is a pronoun. This pronoun in English as in Greek has to match Josiah. So if I come in here and I use a feminine pronoun, that's breaking the rules, Now, I can do that if I'm trying to be cutesy or poke fun at you for, I don't know, wearing the color pink or something like that. But I'm doing, I'm breaking it.
2: For the record, I'm not wearing
0: pink. For the record, he's not wearing pink. But like, I'm doing that to make a point. I think if I said, for example, it smiles, Josiah is happy, it smiles, it would just be confusing. Be like, what do you mean it? I thought you were talking about Josiah, right? So that's what Millard Erickson is saying is going on here. Uh, where the word for spirit is neuter, so the pronoun should always be neuter, and he's saying you find a masculine pronoun as if the Bible is trying to go out of its way to make the point that it is a masculine. And this, I think, is a difficult text for us and something you need to be prepared to answer in addition to the one that Kyle brought up to us in uh, Acts 5.3. Let's take a look at this, and I, I'm sorry that there's, there's Greek in here. This Kurt guy, he likes to use Greek words. Okay, so you see where I'm at on page 16 there? It's the uh, quotation there. Everybody on page 16? All right. So it says, this is Kurt Mays, who wrote a master's thesis called "Pronominal Reference and the Personality of the Holy Spirit. Seemed like a smart guy. That's a nice, nice obscure title. Uh, It is necessary to begin back in verse 7. So he's looking at John 16, for example. He says you have to start back in verse seven, where the spirit is introduced as the parakletos, which is the word for advocate. Some of your translations maybe say helper. Let's let's look at it up here. Comforter, if you want to go uh, old school, can you read that?
2: Yeah. Verse seven there. Remember that I, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I go, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll set him to you.
0: All right, so this helper here, this word helper, is in, uh, we would use the English, paraclete, okay, which corresponds to the Greek, which is parakletos, okay? Paraklete is the English, parakletos is the Greek. And it, it just means, it means helper or advocate. It's somebody that like helps you out. You need an advocate, you need somebody to, to fight for you. That sort of thing, right? Uh, So, as it turns out, this word here, translated helper, is masculine. So, the way it works in John 16 is you have the word helper, which is masculine, and you have the word spirit, which is neuter. So, that's why you have two kinds of pronouns floating around. The masculine ones are going back to the word helper, and the neuter ones are going back to the word spirit. It's really not. There's not like this big grammatical conspiracy to prove the trinity here. It's just that helper happens to be... Mat- just to
2: clarify, you're saying that the pronoun going back to helper referring to helper
0: instead of... The, when, when, it's set, when it has a masculine pronoun, it's referring back to helper. Okay. So for example, this right here, I will send him to you. This right here, this word him, off tone, that is the mascul- that's a masculine word there. Okay, so that's because this word "helper" is masculine. Okay. So helper is masculine. So he doesn't say, "I will send it to you." He says, "I will send him to you." Mm-hmm. Just like in English, if a noun is masculine, the pronoun has to be masculine. So the noun is feminine, the pronoun has to be feminine, and so on. All right, let's let's read uh, Kurt here. It is necessary to begin back in verse seven. There, the Spirit is introduced as the Helper, the Parakletos and becomes the subject of an extended discussion. Afton, the word him, in verse 7 refers back to Parakletos, as does Ikinos, that one, in verse 8. Then verses 9 through 11 explain the work of the helper with respect to the world, which work was introduced in verse 8. Notice the dependency of verses 9 through 11 on verse 8, as attested by the incomplete, incomplete sentences in the former. Verse 12 sets the stage for another statement about the work of the Helper, this time with respect to believers. Ekinos is used in both verses 13 and 14, probably with the same reference. On the basis of this sequence, then, it is the writer's contention that Oparakletos, the Helper, is introduced in verse 7 as the subject of the passage and remains the subject through 15. Ekinos would then refer to parakletos in each instance when it's used in 8, 13, and 14. Simple agreement, the general rule. And this guy believes in the Trinity. He believes the Holy Spirit's a person, and he's saying the grammar argument is just no good. It's true, but this is a bad argument for it. So, um, you can look at that more if you want, but if you look back at the original quote that Dan Wall read for us on page 14, That was Millard Erickson's point. His point was, in John 16, 13-14, we find an unusual phenomenon. As Jesus describes the Holy Spirit's ministry, he uses a masculine pronoun, ekinos, where we would expect a neuter pronoun, echin without the S on the end. That's the neuter is just like an O, just like the word the, okay? This is defeating that based on the... Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? I feel like you're just tired or... I'm speaking grammar at you.
2: Well, I get it. Well, like, and it, just because something has a, a gender in Greek doesn't mean that it has gender identity, like lithos. You know, that means a rock. And it's a masculine noun. That doesn't mean that rock is a guy. Right. Um, I mean, that's
0: okay, that's an excellent point. Uh, let's look at page 17 here. Now, here's here's the problem with your point. As it refers to the helper. In verse seventeen, it says, or chapter fourteen, verse seventeen, it says, "The spirit abides with you." in fourteen twenty six, it says it teaches you all things. You, obviously, you can learn from a thing, but typically you learn from an individual. in fourteen twenty six, the Spirit brings to your remembrance. in twenty six, it testifies about Jesus. In eight, chapter sixteen, verse eight, it convicts the world. in chapter sixteen, verse thirteen, it guides you into all truth. It will not speak of its own initiative, and it hears, speaks, and discloses. Things do not speak, disclose, hear. In verse 14, it will glorify me. In verse 14 again, it will take of mine, or he will take of mine, and disclose to you. So, look at that uh, quote on page 17 by Patrick Navis. The fact that the Spirit is sometimes depicted as teaching, speaking, interceding, guiding, and helping in the Scriptures "...has influenced many theologians to conclude that the Spirit must be a distinct person like God the Father and Jesus Christ. But, because the Holy Spirit does not have personal proper name like the Father and Son, is never shown to be an object of worship or recipient of prayer, and never depicted or identified as a member of a triune God in Scripture, other Bible students, like the Church of God, believe that these are simply a few of numerous examples where the Bible uses a common linguistic device of personification. That is, the practice of ascribing personal attributes or qualities to subjects that are not actually or literally persons. Now flip on to page 18. I've got a table for you of examples of personifications in the Bible. We already looked at the one in Genesis. The blood is crying out. That's personification. That's treating the blood as if it's a person, because only a person, an individual of some sort, can cry out. Isaiah 3.26, it says the gates will lament. Gates can swing, but they cannot lament okay, or mourn. It's personification. Isaiah 35, the desert will be glad. Isaiah 49, the heavens shout for joy. The earth rejoices. The mountains break forth into joyful shouting. So this is all over the Bible, I've got a whole bunch more references here. The biggest one in the Old Testament is Proverbs 8, where wisdom is a she, and she's calling out in the street, over and over again. And then you see it in 1 Corinthians 13 as well, love is patient. Well, love is a description of a behavior. Love is a behavior, so how is a behavior patient? It's like as if it's a person. Love is kind, it does not brag, it's not arrogant, and so on. It's beautiful, it's a personification. Uh, let's look at the other scripture that, what's his face, uh, Millard. Who names their kid Millard, anyhow?
2: think name sounds better as Millard.
0: Millard? Millard. Is it Millard? Was that, uh, in the Simpsons, was that like the neighbor's kid? Was that Millard?
4: Millhouse.
0: Millhouse, yeah, that's way off. Okay, never mind. Millhouse, nobody calls their kid Millhouse, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, look at this one on page 18. At the very bottom, it says Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And then look on page 19. This was his other text, his other difficult text for us. And uh, the verse is actually listed on the bottom of 18. It's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. But it's on 19 where we read it. In which also, I'm reading the middle. In which also you having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you have believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, either which or who is a down payment of our inheritance. And so the issue here is... Manuscripts, yay. So I love manuscript issues because we could just look up what the scholars say and they can tell us what's going on and we can get some, some good insight into the situation. So we'll just go to textual criticism. Here's our summary. The uh, committee decides that O is the correct reading, which is the word which. It's a neuter pronoun, which is our point. Point for our side, Millard, Millard. Um, but then they give it a B rating. So it's not absolutely certain, it's it's relatively certain, but not absolutely certain. And uh, Metzger and, and and company say it is difficult to decide whether the copyist altered os to o in order to make it agree with the gender of Panavma or whether O became os by attraction to the gender of the following Erebone, which is the word down payment, according to a usual idiom, on the basis of what was taken to be superior external attestation. That is to say a lot of other manuscript copies. A majority of the committee preferred the reading O. So Millard, I'll just call him Erickson. Erickson said a similar reference in Ephesians 1.14 where in a relative clause modifying Holy Spirit, the preferred textual reading is os. That is a lie. These are the textual scholars. Mm. The textual scholars say the preferred is O, not os. O, which not who. So I don't, I don't know why he said that. Maybe it was true when he wrote it in 1985. Perhaps. This book came from 1985, and then later on more manuscripts were discovered. But as it is today, in the 21st century, the majority do actually say it's, oh, which, not who. So this is a not, Ephesians 1.14 is a complete non-issue for us. Let me, uh, let me look at page 20 with you. Is the Spirit a thing, a person, or neither? And here's, uh, this is kind of like establishing your point, Kyle, from before. uh, A a bunch of places where God's presence and the Holy Spirit are in parallel with each other. So like Psalm 51.11 is where David says, Don't send me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. So like presence in one line. Holy Spirit in the other. So you see a lot of things like that where God and His Spirit are in parallel with each other. And there's the example from Matthew 12, 28 and Luke eleven twenty 20 in the middle of that table on page 20 where it says, Spirit of God equals finger of God. right? So you see that God and the Spirit are used interchangeably. And then on page 21, you see a table where you have a lot of references where the Spirit is autonomous. right? So uh, the Spirit in Mark 1.12, impelled him to go into the wilderness. Acts 1.16, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold. It doesn't say Spirit of God, it doesn't say God, it just says Spirit. It's like the Spirit is itself doing things. Then you have another grouping at the bottom of page 21 of text where the Spirit is spoken of as a thing or a gift. <clears throat> I've got a lot of references there. And it's also spoken of in terms of a liquid you can be filled with the Spirit the Spirit can be poured upon you can be baptized in the Spirit or something received like a gift so then on page 22 we see a grouping of verses where the Spirit is interchanged with Christ so it's interchanged with God it's spoken of as His own it's spoken of as a thing and it's interchanged with Christ okay I'm, I'm just giving you the evidence so you see all the different ways that the Bible is using these things. And then I'll attempt to synthesize an understanding that's cohesive. Uh, All right, so on page 23 there, you have all these verses where it says the, the helper will come. And then it says, I will come. Jesus speaking, right? So it's like Jesus being interchanged with the helper again. So page 24, second paragraph there. Let's read that one. So pulling together the various threads of the biblical data regarding the Spirit, we have the following picture. Spirit lowercase s, or Spirit capital S, is sometimes used interchangeably with God, sometimes employed to refer to Christ, and as such appears autonomous. However, other times the Spirit sounds much more like a thing or a force or a gift. I do not claim to have some brand new category of thought that would adequately hold together these disparate notions, but I can say it's not at all helpful to box ourselves into one and only category of thinking about the Spirit. We should allow it to be what it is. And I love this little quote from the Anchor Bible Dictionary. They say, the Spirit appears in some texts the autonomous agent of prophecy, the vehicle of sanctification and intercession, the sign of God's acceptance, a guarantee of future salvation, It is also, however, clearly designated as the Spirit of God, the Spirit sent by God that represents, in some sense, God's active and indwelling presence. So which is it? Let me just keep reading here. So which it a person or a thing? Is it both or neither? Perhaps the whole purpose of a concept like Spirit is to defy the pinning down of a single definition. I agree with the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia when they write, the New Testament treatment of the Spirit is difficult, ambiguous, and sometimes even oblique to the interests of later Trinitarianism. (laughs) Oblique. Who uses words like that? Not even me. Defining the Spirit as another distinct personality within God not only fails to account for all the data, but it also exerts tremendous pressure on translation committees to shoehorn the original text into a Trinitarian mold, even when doing so requires them to violate their own principles of translation and violate the very scripture they revere so much. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. This is my best stab at what what the Holy Spirit. And I've written other papers on this. It's something that takes a lot of thought and research. Because the Holy Spirit is is a complicated subject. The Spirit is a way of talking about God when He's doing something on Earth, okay, or maybe doing something in in the sky.
2: So it's fair to say the Spirit is God.
0: You can say the Spirit is God, but it's it is actually not God. Because he can put the Spirit on something. You know what I mean? While he's still in heaven. The term I use for it is quasi-personal. It's not like if you said to the Spirit, how are you today? The Spirit can say back to you an answer different than what the Father is feeling. Okay? And the, the text that, that, my go-to text for this is 1 Corinthians 2.11, for no one knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God, which is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. This text here helps me understand to bridge the gap between is the Spirit a person or is it a thing? I want to say yes. If it's a person, it's the Father, or it's the Son. You know what I mean? Because you you see the Spirit referring to God, or the Spirit referring to Christ. But it's not really them, It's, it's sort of like a projection of them. They're in heaven, but they're also here via the Spirit. And so the Spirit knows their mind, just like your Spirit knows your mind. Now, could I say your Spirit is you? Yeah, I could say that. But at the same time, I'm speaking of it as if it's it's somewhat independent as well. I don't know how to do better than that. That's the best I got.
4: I doubt no one's ever thought of this before, but what came to my mind tonight is, especially in the John 14 to 16 passages, if Jesus used a modern illustration, could he have said, I'm going away, but I'm gonna send you the power of the internet, and through the power of the internet, I'm gonna, all these things are gonna happen.
0: Mm. Which would be easy to understand. That's just not personal enough.
4: That's what I'm... Yeah, Yeah. because then he would have to then personify that statement.
0: I would say it'd be more like, I'm going to send you my avatar. Yeah. Or my... I'm going to cut you
4: through that. But why...
0: I think you're onto something, but it's not quite... Right. It's not quite matching up. Why, like, just to go back to the actual passage then. It's like he's sending his other self. Yeah, like, but, what but his point? other self can be in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and yeah. you, you, all so at the had same had time. Personal Jesus. Ra- yeah, Christ in you. You heard yeah. that phrase before?
4: Yeah. Did he personify the Holy Spirit in John 14?
0: Oh, I forgot to show you the clincher verse. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, so, John in John 16:25, Jesus says, "I have said these things to you in figures of speech." He says at the end of all this talk about the Spirit and the the Helper and everything, he says, I'm speaking to you in a figure of speech. Now look, if Jesus says he's speaking in a figure of speech, and you interpret him literally, you're disobeying. You're being obtuse. You're being obtuse. You're, you're, You're understanding it. You're being difficult. You know what I mean? So he says... I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from God, I am leaving the world, and so on. Then his disciples answered, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Je- and Jesus is like, do you now believe? You know? <laughs> he goes on from there. But Jesus has already said at the end of the Last Supper discourse where all this he business is, this is a figure of speech, guys. It's really the only place that Jesus does that, too. Jesus will use figures of speech. You're just supposed to get it. And when his critics don't get it, he, they ask, like, dumb questions, and he makes it worse, right? When his own disciples don't get it, he explains it. Mm-hmm. But to his own... So he, he's been speaking figuratively, and now his disciples, he's like, guys, you, you realize I'm speaking in figures of speech, right? <laughs> Do you know why he chose to speak in figures? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's the only way to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, you saw how much I'm struggling to to explain to pin down a de- an exact definition of what the spirit is.
4: Imagine.
0: Defining the spirit is like giving a cat a shower. You know, you can do it, but it's it's gonna be a heck of a fight. And when you're done, you're not sure if you finished the job, you left something out. That's like the whole purpose of the word spirit is that it's not some like definitive thing like a water bottle. It's almost like putting something unnatural on it to talk about it in very narrow, precise terms. It's the kind of thing that wants to spill out of the container.
1: You Do you know, know of any uh, good books that you would recommend that uh, talk in detail about the
0: spirit? Well, Patrick Novice has a lot of discussion on the subject and his his book is very good check out his chapter on that. His book is called Divine Truth or Human Tradition, colon, a reconsideration of the Roman Catholic, hyphen, Protestant doctrine of the Trinity. (laughs) It's like the longest title ever. (laughs) He lives in California. And he he does a good job with the Holy Spirit. He's helped me a lot on it. Bible dictionaries, just a, a regular old Bible dictionary, whether you have Hastings or the New Bible Dictionary, or some other Bible dictionary, they tend to actually be really good on the Spirit because although the theologians are usually super, super biased, the guy writing the dictionary has got to like actually bring in all the verses on the subject. And once you do that, you realize, okay, the Spirit can mean this or it can mean that, and they'll give you all the categories.
2: How is the... Because the Spirit, And in Hebrew, is not a neuter. Um, <laughs>
0: Alright, so these are these are the three words in the Bible that refer to the Holy Spirit. Ruach, pnevma, and paraclete, or paracletos. Right? So ruach, it turns out, is feminine. Pnevma is neuter, and paraclete is masculine. The Holy Spirit is transgendered. <laughs> okay, that's a joke. It's not really, it's not really a person, so you don't really have to struggle with this. The spirit, like, even just think about how ridiculous that phrases. Like, the spirit doesn't have a gender. Of course it doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have a body. It's not physical. It can cause physical things to happen, right, Stefan Comes on to Samson. He's got the jawbone of a donkey. Right? It could cause things to happen. It can blow over the waters. Uh, but it is not itself embodied, so it's not going to have any kind of a gender in that sense. Strictly speaking, neither does God. Uh, although he does refer to himself with masculine pronouns. That could be part of the culture or whatever. All right, so that's, that's a couple words on spirit. Let me just give you um, a quick rundown on some other things that will come up when people talk to you about this subject. You have this phrase, the Holy Spirit says. Okay, you find that in the Bible, or you find the phrase intercession of the Holy Spirit. One more, blasphemy, against the Holy Spirit. All right, so these are are three more things that will come up when you talk about this subject with people. The first one is a formula to uh, talk about Scripture, actually, and it shows up in a lot of places. 2 Samuel 23.2, Matthew 22.43, Mark 12.36, um, Acts one sixteen and 28.25. These are texts where it says the Holy Spirit says, or the Holy Spirit speaks. Although communicating is certainly an indication of personhood, this is not necessarily the case for these texts because the Spirit is a way of talking about God in action. And the best text on that, to clear that all up, so these are texts where it says the Holy Spirit says. that The, the control text, to make sense of it all, is 2 Peter 1.21, where Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's really God, but he's using the Spirit to speak to his prophets. It's a, it's a great text to, to make sense of it all. This is James Dunn. He writes, As for the rabbinic formula, the Holy Spirit says, is this any more than what we might call a literary hypostatization? Whew. That's like when you turn something that's a thing into a person. That is, a habit of language which by use and want develops what is only an apparent distinction between Yahweh and one of these words and phrases used earlier to describe His activity towards men. Have we in all these cases any more than a personification, a literary or verbal device to speak of God's action without becoming involved every time in a more complicated description of how the transcendent God can intervene on earth? In other words, simply a useful shorthand device, spirit of God, glory of God, we might add to it, wisdom of God, word of God, which can both express God's character of eminence in a particular instance and safeguard his transcendence at the same time without more ado. All right, so that's the first one. The second one, intercession of the Holy Spirit. This comes to us from Romans 8, 26 to 27. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this scripture before, Romans eight twenty six to 27. But it's the one where it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The ironic thing is it's actually, in the Greek, it says the spirit itself. It does not say the spirit himself. An actual reading of this is, but the spirit itself intercedes for us. But then you still have the same question. Well, what the heck does it mean, intercede? How can a thing intercede? How does that work? So I've got a little quote for you from Joseph Thayer. He says, based on the whole context, he says, although we have no very definite concept of what we desire, you ever feel that way? You don't know what you want to pray for? And cannot state in fit language in our prayer, but only disclose it by inarticulate groanings. Yet God receives these groanings as acceptable prayers inasmuch as they come from a soul full of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is interceding. It's, it's, it's uh, going between us and God, helping God to understand what's actually going on inside of us Intercede is, is, uh, the word inter, I-N-T-E-R, in Latin means between. And seed is to, like, to go. So it goes in between us and God, so that God, it's a way that God can know what you need, even if you can't even say it out loud. We all believe this is true anyhow, right? But this is is what this text is saying. It's interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. We're groaning, but... you know and God is able to see what's going on.
4: So are we the one groaning, or is the spirit groaning?:
0: Yes. so is this, uh, is this- <laughs> I think this is the person is groaning, but it's like the spirit transmitting is that God is transmitting that to God, it, that that to God. Right sense. right, right. Interceding that works for prayer. Right, right. It's a comforting thought. I think that's the point of it that God is able to hear our prayers even when our prayers are just like Ugh. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. And then the last one is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So sometimes people will say, uh, you can't blaspheme a thing. You can only blaspheme a person. So this is Matthew twelve thirty two. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What's your take on that?
3: It's a quench oh thanks. To stop the Holy Spirit from operating in your life, or on your life, however you want to term it. Okay. But to, to resist it, to quit it, to vex it.
4: So, almost by definition, you can't, you can't be forgiven because you're stopping God from even coming into your life.
2: Or you're stopping the agent of God, however you want to look yeah. at it. Yeah. I, I guess I've always seen that as um, attributing a work of God to, to something else that's not God. Like where the Pharisees.
0: Jesus of working from Beelzebub. Mm-hmm. That's it right here. This is exactly it. There's a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him. So the man spoke and saw. The people are like, this can can this be the Son of David? Is this the Messiah? The Pharisees say it's only by Beelzebul, the Prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. That's what Jesus calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit.
2: Yeah, and John, they having this conversation amongst themselves, and it's like, if the Messiah comes, he's not going to do any greater works than this guy, right? It's very obvious that they're trying to... They understand that something supernatural is happening here, and they're not ascribing that to God. That's like the most blunt thing a, a Jewish person can do, to say that a miracle was not from God. I mean, that's just rude.
0: <laughs> they're not just saying it's not from God. They're saying it's evil. Right, yeah. They're watching the Messiah cast out spirits, and they're saying, it's not God who is with us, you know, through the Messiah, it's the devil who is with us through the Messiah, through this fake Messiah. They're calling the spirit of God, the spirit of the devil. That's what they're doing. Blaspheming against the spirit doesn't mean that the um, spirit is a person separate than God, because it's really God who's healing and casting out these spirits through Jesus. He calls it the spirit, but it's really the spirit of God. It's God's spirit that's active in doing it. So it's really an insult against God, ultimately. All right, that's enough of that, enough of the theology. That was a little heavy, a little dense. If you want to read this, you can, and then it hopefully will make more sense if you read it later. Well, thanks for tuning in for this episode. I've got a number of links at the bottom of the show notes for this episode, including Patrick Novice's book, uh, three articles I've written on the Holy Spirit, one that I used for last time and the others that I used for this time, as well as a few others. Before closing out, I did want to read out just a couple of brief thoughts, two of which are from last week, Theology Part 14 on the Holy Spirit. John Roftos writes in, Hello, thanks for covering this topic, and yes, as a JW— I have had the Holy Spirit explained many times as similar to an electric current emanating from God. For those of you who don't know, a JW is a Jehovah's Witness. An impersonal force, power emanating from him. I think the above material offers a more reasonable understanding of the Holy Spirit, especially when Jesus talks about it in different ways and even says he will send the Spirit too. Thanks for rounding up this information. Don, a servant... Writes, Thank you for the hard work of locating all of these scriptures. As I read through them all, I could not find the most important one that identifies the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes 2 Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's from the King James, and then he also quotes from the Complete Jewish Bible. Now Adonai in this text means the Spirit. Where the spirit of Adonai is, there is freedom. Thank you. May the Holy Spirit guide us into all understanding. All right. Well, first off, John, thanks for making mention of the Jehovah's Witnesses' take on the spirit. I was very consciously fighting against oversimplifying the spirit into just some non personal force. But at the same time, I wanted to not go so far as to identify the spirit one-to-one with just the Father or Jesus Christ, uh, because I think there is an ambiguity here, and I think you really hear my struggle in this uh, lecture. Those of you who made it this far have have no doubt felt my my agony here in trying to figure this all out. But, I mean, in the end, what I'm trying to do here with this material on the Spirit and what I've already written about it is be honest. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be honest and to speak where the Scripture speaks and not speak where it doesn't speak. And I I am in agreement with so many of you out there who are just so uncomfortable with the Trinitarian limitations put on the Spirit that it has to be seen as a distinct person apart from the Father and the Son, and then is subsequently always capitalized in the translations, even when when it's clear that it should not be so. So as far as Don's point goes, uh, I'm not really— sure what he's what he's pointing out here by quoting second corinthians 3:17 is i recall this is the passage where paul essentially equates jesus with the spirit and that is certainly something that i cover in here that Jesus is able to be present in his people via the Spirit. This seems to be the main point of the Upper Room Discourse, that he's leaving and the Spirit is coming, and yet he also says a few times, I am coming. And the synthesis there is that Jesus is coming via the Spirit, even before he comes to raise the dead and bring about the kingdom of God. So I'll have to wait to see if Don wants to comment some more and explain better what it, what his point is here. I also had another comment come in on the, a series of comments come, on, come in on my article, The Trinity Before Nicaea, which also became a theological presentation just recently by someone named Gab, G-A-B, who writes, Where did Ignatius of Antioch say that Jesus is not God? Well, Gab, uh, as it turns out, Ignatius of Antioch is somewhat of a mystery to me. As a church historian, it is the sort of obvious place in all the apostolic fathers for uncertainty, because we do have three different versions of Ignatius' writings. And to be frank, the arguments I've seen for, in particular, the middle recension, being the one and only authentic, seem rather ad hoc and rather theologically motivated. Uh, so I'm not really sure we know what the original Ignatius even said, uh, but it certainly is the case that in what we have that survives from him, the Ignatius of the middle collection appears to believe Jesus is God and preexisted, as well as the Ignatians, Ignatius of the longer version. However, the Ignatius of the longer version is very Clear in that the father is superior to the son, and I think also pretty clear that the son did not always exist. Uh, so I'm I'm not really sure what to make of that. This is an area where I would love if any of you listeners have done the hard research on Ignatius and compared all three versions together. For example, I mean I've read read it through a couple of times, but it's still just so hard to figure out like what is. What is the Christology of Ignatius of Antioch, and is the Ignatius of Antioch that we have actually second century, or is it really fourth century? Corrupting him to read later ideas into him. Uh, Gab also mentions: Where did Ignatius of Antioch say that Jesus is not pre-existed but pre-ordained? I-, I would say, from what we have, the opposite seems to be the case in Ignatius. Gab writes one and is uh, on, on the third comment here. There is. Quoting Ignatius, there is one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first passable, then impassable, even Jesus Christ our Lord. This is from the letter to the Philippians chapter 7 in the, the middle version, which Gab uh, somewhat mistakenly here calls the shorter version. Anyhow, this is the, the classic text that Catholics and Protestants will use to try and prove that Ignatius just believed in the Trinity. But as I pointed out in my talk, we do not have the Trinity in Ignatius. We have him using language that's certainly compatible with the Trinity, but we're we're missing key elements that are necessary for a Trinitarian understanding. And Ignatius just doesn't have them uh, in whatever version we want to talk about. He doesn't have enough to say... Yes, this guy believed in the Trinity. And on the strength of that, I make my case. Not on the strength that he didn't believe Jesus was God in some sense or that Jesus preexisted in some sense. So uh, hopefully that clears things up a little bit. If any of you out there want to join in on this discussion about Ignatius of Antioch, I would love to see what you have to say. Come over to Restitudio.org and under Articles, you can find the Trinity Before Nicaea article and leave your comment there. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.